If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, full of little Ido. He was a queer one, and I'll tell you. Hello and welcome to If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin Perspective. My name is Pat Lynch and I hope you will join me as we journey through the Dublin One City One Book selection for 2014 entitled If Ever You Go, a Map of Dublin in Poetry and Song. In this programme we begin our literary journey of Northside Dublin starting with the city centre. We feature the following poems. Rights of the Flesh by Biddy Jenkinson. We hear from Dr Philip Coleman reading and discussing O'Connell Street by Francis Ledwich. But first, we begin with Nessa Homani and flute fixing in McNeil's of Cable Street. I would have passed it by, secreted between pound shops, purveyors of pine or 50 types of trainer. But you knew the way, easing the heavy door, leading me in. Time was suspended with the moats as light slipped in through timbered slats and varnish teased our noses till our breath was pure mahogany. The job was not yet done. He twined the hemp, unwound and twined again around the bevelled shaft, retouched with beeswax so the cord stayed moist and pliant, as he talked of sessions, of bowrons played in the Sligo style. As he worked, you browsed from shelf to shelf, ear cocked to some internal tune among the lutes and mandolins, till a bazooki's soundboard curved to swell a song you promised I might one day sing. OK, that was Flute Fixing in McNeil's of Cable Street, read there by Nessa Homani. Thanks indeed for reading that. Um, it's one of those great things a poetry can do just capture the moment and the idea that you can be randomly walking through the city centre at a day and you walk into a shop and you're in this other world which presumably is what happened here on that particular day. Absolutely. I mean it, it was a lot of what I write is biographical and it was a, a moment with a, a former boyfriend he was a musician I'd never heard of this shop it, it's gone McNeil's it, it's the, the shop front is there I think it's a pub now but it was back in the 90s an actual uh, musical instrument shop where they did repairs and it was like going into another age wandering Mm. into this place and the smells and the sounds and just the sense of this other world that I was being given a glimpse into. I think that's what I was trying to capture. Yeah, literally the doorway into another world because it was a great description too of that street. It it becomes very immediately recognisable the way you describe the furniture shops. It's what you think of with Cable Street. And I don't think that's changed that much. (laughs) Maybe maybe the shop you said was the the oddball on the road. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. No, but but I think the surprise of what you find when you go in a doorway mm. and, and, and suddenly a whole new world opens up. Yeah. Um, and I think because my boyfriend then was a musician, which was a new world for me as well. And the experience of being with him was new. And so I was I was all of that was going on. Yeah. And, and as I say, there's, there's a few things as well. The, the, the way we're transported initially, that lovely description of smell and the, the reader gets a sense straight away you're there. Yeah, yeah there's the, the craft like this 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 man was a genius he seemed to be able to repair any type of instrument at all um but again 
a craft that you wouldn't be aware of yeah. being on the outside. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the sights and the smells and the sounds were important. Yeah. And, and then to it as well, in one level, we're in this city centre shop, but you're, you're brought into the idea of maybe smoky filled pubs in the West and Sligo, I think is mentioned with the, yeah. the, 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 the session, if you like. Yeah. Well, that's it, because performance is the end yes, of, yeah. of, of, of all music, I suppose. It's the sharing of it. Yeah. And again, I guess part of it was me sharing somebody else's world vicariously. I think poets do that a lot. They they see something through maybe the filter of somebody else and they try and experience it. So that was also going on. It's a little bit like being a tourist in ways, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is, yeah, I suppose a tourist of experience, Yeah, yeah. I suppose. But, but we're all, I think, you know, we're all sort of outsiders going around uncovering things and, and, and trying to understand them. Um, sometimes it's through some people we meet, sometimes it's through things we see or books we read. Um, and I think the writer does try and sort of capture that that learning yeah. experience, I suppose. And and <laughs> it moves from, I suppose, to, <coughs> excuse me, from the, the general maybe to the more specific at the end, that idea of it, there's a certain kind of intimacy comes yeah. into it then. You'd know these are a couple. Yeah, a couple, though possibly on slightly dodgy grounds because <laughs> I always wanted that you promised to be loaded <laughs> because a uh, lovely man that he was, he didn't always keep his promises. Okay. <laughs> we ask members of the local public about their experience of poetry. What is your impression of poetry? How does it make you feel? Well, it's nice. I like, like listening to it. I think it would be very nice if you understood it, you know, really. <laughs> For me, like, I do feel like I'm entrapped sometimes and when I write, when I compose my poetry, I get a release. It's either in the humorous sense, I write sort of play with words and I write more or less the humorous sense of poetry. It's based on resilience, really. You know, my own, my own experience, my own experience of recovery from addiction and it's based on resilience. True humour. Oh, yes, yeah, some of it absolutely brings you like you know and you realize what's all about all the world and the earth and feelings you know <laughs> certain poetry is nice you know yeah. if you not very good at understanding it but it is, it is nice actually i like it like it's really creative and like it can be good it depends like there's some, there can be some really bad ones as well i just i think it's lovely it's a nice way to express yourself and all yeah i feel in good form I think it's very nice because the writers they express their feelings so maybe if we don't understand everything that they say even though it's amazing What I remember of it was always forced into you, forced learning maybe I don't appreciate it as much as I should do um, It's okay <laughs> I wouldn't be mad about it I like poetry I don't know how to explain why I like it but I just enjoy it yeah I enjoy the way people put words together and the rhyme and that. Yeah. I think it's um, fantastic to um, the cleverness with which they use the words to express feelings and to conjure up a scene. Michael Sharp of the Near Drama Company recites O'Connell Street by Francis Ledwich. A noble failure is not vain, but hath a victory its own. A bright delectance from the slain is down the generation's throne. And more than beauty understands has made her lovelier here, it seems. I see white ships that crowd her strands, for mine are all the dead man's dreams. And here to discuss O'Connell Street by Francis Ledwich is Dr. Philip Coleman of Trinity College, Dublin. 
We began by asking Philip if this was typical of the poems of Francis Ledwidge. A lot of Ledwidge's poems, the poems that he's most famous for today, are war poems. Um, He died in 1917, three years into the Great War, and we do have quite a number of poems from the three years of the war, the first three years of the war. Um, But he was, at this point, um, already something of an established poet insofar as he had written a large body of work, and much of that is lyric in nature. He wrote short, rhymed, lyric poems, often in quatrains, often organised in four-line stanzas, as this poem is. It has a very straightforward structure on the face of it. O'Connell Street is a poem of eight lines divided into two four-line stanzas, two quatrains. It rhymes A-B-A-B in both stanzas. The, The rhyme words are vain, Rhyming with slain in the third line, own and thrown, understands with strands, seems with dreams. I do think, though, despite the surface simplicity of this, that there is something quite complex going on there, even on the level of rhyme. Why did Ledwidge think, for example, that the word vain should find its sonic echo in the word slain? Um, Again, the idea of being thrown in the fourth line is rhyming with the word own in the second. Now, this might appear to be merely a comment on the obvious, but I think, in fact, what Ledwidge is doing here is using the idea of simplicity and using the idea of a simple lyric music uh, to explore something that is actually very complex and which in a way escapes the poem's own boundaries. Um, It is a war poem. It is a poem about violence. Um, It is a poem about the legacy of war into the future, looking down the generations to come. It is a poem that uh, describes the difficulty of seeing beauty um, and lovely things at a time of war. So I think that uh, while the poem is itself a kind of beautiful thing, it is a well-made eight-line poem very carefully crafted and so on, um, it does nonetheless carry the weight of its historical tragedy within it. And when we pay attention to the rhyme words, when we pay attention to the language of the poem, we can see that it is uh, burdened um, by something much darker than this simple and rather light structure seems to suggest. I think whenever... A poet mentions O'Connell Street, we think immediately of the GPO and perhaps the 1916 Rising. While Ledwidge would have certainly been interested in this event, um, he was a very political writer, he was very much engaged with the local politics of his home village in Slane in County Meath, but also Irish politics at the time. He was a very politically engaged writer. I do think, though, that this poem, even though it has that Irish context suggested by the title which was added later after his death. I do think that it invites us to think about emigration and the kind of migration that occurs as a result of a world war. In those final lines where he writes, I see white ships that crowd her strands, for mine are all the dead men's dreams. I see in those lines a reference to the many ships perhaps taking young Irish men to fight in the Great War in 1917 and 1918. And I think it's especially um, apposite 
in this year, in, 19, in 2014, 2015, that we should be reflecting on this poem, which is, I think, um, an important uh, Irish poet of the Great War's work um, in response to that event. So I think that the white ships there, the dead men's dreams there, um, are are really, uh, this is an image, I think, that um, Ledwidge has created to think about the difficulty of war in general that could be thought of uh, in terms of the Great War and I suppose then more locally it could be th- thought of in terms of the the, uh, the War of Independence, um, which, which, which he didn't live to see. The poem treats language in an elevated way. Um, the very notion of a, of a noble failure that is not in vain but hath a victory of its own. There is something rather archaic about um, the language um, to talk from the very beginning of the poem about nobility, about failure, about vanity, about victory. These are terms that are somewhat elevated and beyond the concerns of everyday life. In the third line of the poem, he, he uses this uh, word delectance, a bright delectance from the slain is down the generation's throne. If we try to understand it in its context, in those two lines of the poem, it's a word that is surrounded by images of death, of violence, of bloodshed and posterity. The idea that something bright, something possibly sweet even, suggested by the um, word delectable, um, but also a kind of reluctance, a kind of luminescence in a way, is being thrown over generations to come, down the generations, down history after this event, from the wounds, in a way, of of those who have been slain in battle. So it's a very, very disturbing image. It's an image that, on the one hand, seems to suggest that there is some kind of victory or glory, even, uh, to be gained from warfare. Um, But it is also uh, a very ambivalent um, image. And the word does stand out, but so do uh, words like beauty, for example, which in the first line of the second stanza is uh, has a, has an init- a capital um, initial letter. Um, and so w- when we see that in Ledwidge's poem, we know that we're in the realm of um, the abstract. Uh, he is dealing here with abstractions of history and reality at the same time that he is trying uh, to think about uh, the actual experience of warfare, the the white ships taking the men away and so on. Um, so it is a poem, I think, that is caught between different kinds of reality, um, the reality of the present, perhaps for him, fighting in the trenches or on the front in, in, um, in I think, in Belgium. And uh, there is that, thinking about the reality back home in Dublin and in Ireland, um, but he's also trying to see beyond that to some kind of future that is for him very much an abstract thing at this point in time. Well, if you got a wing, oh, take her up to ring, oh, where the waxy sing, oh, all the day. If you had your fill of porter and you can't go any further, give your man the order back to the K and take her up to Monto, Monto. Monto, Monto, take her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. Oh, then the Duke of Gloucester, the dirty old imposter, took a mutt and lost her up the furry glen. 
He first put on his bowler and he buttoned up his trouser and he whistled for a growler and he says, My man, take me up to Monto, 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 take her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. You see the Dublin Fusiliers, the dirty old bamboozleers, the wit'll get the childer. One, two, three. Marching from the linen hall, there's one for every cannonball, and Vicky's going to send yous all o'er the sea. But first go up to Monto, 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 take her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. And when the Tsar of Russia and the King of Prussia landed in the Phoenix Park in a big balloon, they asked the police band to play the wording of the green, but the buggers in the depot didn't know the tune. So the boat went up to Monto, 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 they took her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. The Queen, she came to call on us, she wanted to see all of us. I'm glad she didn't fall on us, she's eighteen stone. Mr. Me Lord Mayor, says she, is this all that you've got to show to me? Why, no, ma'am, there's some more to see. Pogue Mahone! And he took her up to Monto, Monto, Monto. He took her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. And that was Monto, sung for a stare by Stephen Heffernan. And now we're joined by Biddy Jenkinson, who's going to read and discuss her poem, Rights of the Flesh. In Moore Street, where I did dwell, a butcher boy I loved right well. Those of us who had stayed to leaving search sang Moore, not Muir. We had been to elocution. The confirmed Ewers had dropped out. In Moore Street, where I did dwell, a butcher boy I loved right well. Tinker, tailor, butcher, baker, teacher, soldier, cabinet maker, butcher. I go to him now, along with the other housewives, mothers of families. On the wooden block he minces meat, a long black knife in his great big fist. His hands pull ball from socket, remove the thigh bone of the paschal lamb. The hands of an obstetrician. They deliver our daily meat from under the four legs of life. He listens to confessions, the roast or the lack of one. How many sausages are to be cut from the endless rope? Give me a nice tender little bit, please, Billy. We become skittish in the butcher shop, lewd at times. For the man selling meat understands the woman who is buying meat and vice versa. Red is dominant. We spill blood, milk it. Lean lap, billy love, belly bacon, day after day, all the days of our lives. Amen. Okay, wonderful. That was Biddy Jenkinson there reading from Rights of the Flesh, which is a translation from the original Irish poem, which we are going to hear a little later on. But in the meantime, just to talk about the poem itself, um, uh, throughout the book, there's so many different structures to different poems, whether they're short, couplets, stanzas, whatever. This initially looks like a piece of prose. It's a 
big chunk of a poem, if you like, and there's so much going on in it. Um, what quickly becomes obvious is it's quite celebratory. There's, it, there's a joy in it. it there's a, it's almost like a chorus, a homage to, to something. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit about the, the background of the poem, how it came about. Well, my earliest memories of going out shopping with my mother to the butcher's shop, the sawdust on the floor, the carcasses hanging up, and we'd go after the 10 o'clock mass and the people who'd come out sober and demure from the 10 o'clock mass, in the butchers, they'd have be, be laid back and cheerful and swap chat with yeah. the butcher, sometimes slightly risque stuff for solemn housewives. And I, I began to realise as I grew older that the, this is, the, the butcher shop is one of those, it's gone now to a large extent, uh, is, is um, one of these dividing lines between life and death, like Halloween. It's the place where people live by eating the dead. Yeah. And um, it has uh, a heightened um, sense of, of being alive there. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the base, the kernel of the poem. Uh, there, there's a real vibrancy to it as well and, and there is that thing and in some ways it, it's work, the whole idea of food is a metaphor it, 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 there's a passion there it's life <laughs> full circle almost <laughs> you know it, and it comes into the way they relate to the butcher as well there's a yeah. it's almost a kind of she, it mentions itself lewd there's a there's a an innuendo at times isn't there yeah there is but i'm i'm practically a vegetarian myself not quite but practically and the, one of the reasons i'm not a vegetarian is that i know that if people stop eating meat there'd be no more pigs there'd be no more <laughs> uh, no more livestock um and um also the awareness that to live we kill even if it's only yeah. the worms you kill when you're digging a hole for your potatoes or to grow your corn you live on the sweat or on the blood of others yes. and uh, the, the, the thing I feel is to accept this accept your own um, guilt if you like to call it guilt at being alive and to make the most of the life you've got yes, <laughs> purchased yeah. dearly and also the, the, there's a, a nice Respect, although it's playful, there's a respect for the, the butcher himself and his craft. It, there's a lovely description of the way he pulls bone and all. Yeah, well, yeah. yes, respect for life. Use up, you kill the cow, but you use every bit of it. Mm. Now, when I in this in this butcher shop in the poem, uh, and in the pork butchers alongside, you get every little bit of the meat. You'd have tripe, you'd have pigtails, you'd have ears, you'd have pig's cheeks. Now, all you see in the supermarkets at any rate is trays of fillet steak, the prime cuts. What happens to all the rest? We don't even make dog food of it in Ireland. Mm -hmm. This is a terrible lack of respect for the beast that we eat. Yes. Um, the wastage. There must be, I don't know what happens to it. Maybe somebody of your readers and listeners <laughs> will find out what happens. Yeah, and it does bring you back to a different time. It reminded me indeed of going to my own grandmother to the, the, the butchers up around Thomas Street at the time yeah. and she'd be bargaining with them as well yeah. kind oh, of getting yeah. them down and the, the bit that you gave me last week was tough so you'll give me a nice bit this 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 year this time and oh, another thing mince meat was bad because we didn't know what was in it so <laughs> my mother would always insist on getting a proper bit of meat and then get him to mince it and this wasn't all it didn't go up down so well always because it was a special it was a special tray and he'd throw the ends, odds and ends into it and to sell it at a cheap rate but to look for a good piece of meat have it minced and then want to pay the minced rate for it yeah. wasn't done and the whole idea that you could haggle with them but it, it is that idea is, again it was very much the accessibility people go in and nearly handpick 
the meat they're going to eat, have an idea of what they're going to eat, the quality of it. Whereas, as you say, nowadays it does seem so much processed that that personal aspect seems to be gone out of it, doesn't it? And the dignity of the beast that provided it has gone as well. Yeah. There's no there's no longer this sense of reverence for uh, four-footed life yes. in the meat industry. Yeah. Well, as we mentioned at the start of the interview there, this was written originally in Irish, as indeed all your poems are. Oh, they are, yeah. I write, in, I write poetry in Irish. Yeah. 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 And um, how long have you been writing poetry? Oh, since I was a youngster, I think, in school, I started off. I had a very good teacher, especially in the secondary school, in Shore Sister Baptist, and she uh, encouraged us all to write poetry, and uh, I, it stuck with me. Yeah, and I wonder... The whole idea of translating, does much change in translation? Well, I rarely translate. This is most unusual that I translate it. Um, Pat Bourne got around me to write <laughs> a translation, but I don't usually. Um, I could, I can write in English when I have to. Right, OK. But, <laughs> but I prefer to write in, in Irish. Well, maybe you would do us the honour of reading the poem in Irish first. I'd be delighted to read it in Irish. Shamanus Nathola. In Moor Street, where I did dwell, a butcher boy I loved right well. Moo, a mu shockers moo. The blas egendornan a varga hartest. Ne ears bohukusi grad low. In Moor Street, where I did dwell, a butcher boy I loved right well. Tinker, taller, booster, bocker, muntor, cider, nushan shuner, booster. Kay her susi feigns and booster. Thrill a marinish, lest a manati ella, no martyr clinna. A crog a egmin garafola, lishkian, ada rov, erin look image agone. Lava a scorn bowl tull o von femide. Lava a vinen knav ne lesha as kaharu an uin koska. Lava knav shore a yolen steak an lay slanamahu in idr kera kosa ne beha. Eschen she fuisht in ethola. An rolster nu aspa. Kevedish bean is go a huska anu sta who gone shiri. Give me a nice tender little bit, please, Billy. Is beamwood town toss a hush up on Vushdera. Overing Garshulfio. Marganahanine, farn, thola a yeal, ban thola a yanach, is a valor tart. Quirter on Jarag in Uchter and Shaw. Beamwood a fulskapa, a crow. Lean lap, Billy Love, Billy Bacon, Law in Eaglay, Gach Law, Darsail. Amen. Wonderful. Thanks, Billy. Thank you for joining us on If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin Perspective, our exploration of the north side of Dublin through poetry and song. And many thanks to all the guests who featured in this programme. For further information on this series, check out nearfm.ie forward slash if ever you go serious. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, followed it a light He was a queer one and I'll tell you. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.